Welcome to The Perfect Storm, a bi-weekly podcast for business executives and cybersecurity professionals. Industry veterans Michael Markulek and Matthew Webster chat with guests about the latest cyber news, threats, and trends, and how all of it impacts their businesses. Harbor Technology Group is a cybersecurity consulting firm that offers advisory services to the SMB. Harbor believes by taking a proactive rather than reactive approach to cybersecurity, business leaders can develop a cybersecurity program that will address external requirements, exceed client expectations, and ultimately take their organization to the next level. Harbor's innovative processes are based on industry standard frameworks that are tailored to meet the needs of small and medium-sized businesses. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Harbor Technology Group's The Perfect Storm podcast. Um, appreciate everybody uh, listening today. To, I'm super, super stoked to have uh, Nathan Hamill with me today. Uh, he's Senior Director of Research at Kodelsky, um Security. He has joined me to talk about chat GPT and all things open AI, et cetera, which as he and I were emailing back and forth about getting this set up, I said I've, uh, I'm about as excited to, to talk about the, or touch on this topic uh, as I've been on any topic that we've that we've had guests for. So Nathan, uh, thanks a ton for joining us. Um, I know we're going to have a, a fun conversation today to talk about uh, the land of, of ChatGPT and, and and how it applies in general terms and and, and to security as well. So Nathan, uh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Can you take just a couple of minutes uh, to give us an idea of what Kodelsky does? Sure. So uh, Kodelsky Security is part of the Nagra Kodelsky Group, which is uh, an older company that uh, originally focused on uh, recording equipment. So a lot of people <laughs> know the company through uh, tape machines and uh, even like uh, sort of like spy device tape machines like small tape machines the uh watergate tapes were actually recorded on a small nagra device so um but as you can imagine like analog tape isn't really a big a big business uh these days so the company kind of evolved throughout the years to to focus on content protection so a lot of uh, media industry entertainment industry things like that so i work for a business unit uh, called kadelsky security we are a security services provider. Um, we do a lot of the same things that most security consultancies do around, you know, pen testing and governance risk and compliance. But kind of what makes us uh, a bit unique is we we focus, uh, along with our parent company, we focus uh, on innovation. So looking into the future, handling emerging technologies, you know, advising people how to use those emerging technologies safely. Um, so obviously things like, you know, quantum security, AI security, a lot of privacy engineering. So we, we deal with a lot of advanced cryptography. Um, all of those types of things are kind of, you know, rolled up in our things that my team handles. So I lead the fundamental and applied research team. So we do both applied research, which is research in industry, but we do fundamental research too, which is typically only found in academia. So we, what we really try to do is merge those two worlds together to come up with uh, unique solutions uh, for the future. So uh, I'm not a sales guy, so um, 
if, if any <laughs> of my sales team is listening to this, they'll probably hate me for what I right, say. Right, right. But we what have like, what you do. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's great. Um, and, and needless to say, uh, chat GPT and, and the like would be uh, emerging, right? And just correct. Yeah. And how it's being approached by organizations, et cetera. So let, let's, let's start at the start, if, if it's okay. Um, let's start with, give, give us, give us an understanding of what we're really talking about. I mean, everybody, you know, the press, as I talk to clients, as you probably talk to clients, as we talk to people in industry, it's all chat GPT, chat GPT, chat GPT, but there's a lot more to it than that. So why don't we just Correct. let set the set the groundwork of what we're really talking about? Okay. Yeah. I mean, so if we want to take a step back, I mean, what we're really talking about here with chat GPT is a technology um, that you usually hear is called LLM or large language models. So large language models are very large models trained on text data. So um, think of like massive amounts of data, like all of Wikipedia, all of Reddit, all of whatever uh, your corpus is, including open, you know, textbooks and, you know, works of literature. Just think of anything text related. A lot of times that's the data that's kind of used to feed these large language models. And what's why you're kind of hearing more hype or more um, uh, more talk about this recently is because it, previously we had something when we dealt with text tasks, you know, natural language processing tasks, we used to have things called uh, recurrent neural networks. So RNNs, and they use these things called LSTMs or GRUs. And basically what you did was you kind of fed text in, in a very sequential manner and you use these things. Well, there, the, the problems that were, were occurring were twofold. One, they didn't, parallelize very well or at all, depending on what you're doing. And uh, basically they would forget things. So uh, there's only so much memory. They're called long short-term memory, which is a very confusing <laughs> term. Um, but as you'd add more data, it would forget things earlier in the sequence, which can be very bad for like very large pieces of text. So starting back in 2017, uh, Google had this paper called Attention is All You Need, where they defined a transformer. So GPT, Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, kind of gives away uh, this new architecture. So still a neural network, right? Still, it's just, it's using a different architecture. And what a transformer allowed you to do was to look at a word in a piece of text, um, you know, encode its position and, and analyze its relation to words around it. I mean, language tasks are a lot more difficult than people think. Like if I tell you uh, the word bank, for instance, right? What do I mean? Like I didn't use it in a sentence. So do I mean a place you go and get money or do mm -hmm. I mean the side of a river? Am I in a jet? <laughs> you know, these are right. all you know, bank can mean different things depending on its its position in a sentence and its and its meaning. So, what what they've done is they've used transformers, which uh, have uh, better representations for longer memory, and they also um, parallelize, so they're much more efficient. And that allowed these large language models with billions of parameters to to exist. So um, they kind of implement something called attention, which you know, if people really want to know the, the, the logistics, you can, you know, kind of read some of the uh, assessments of the paper. But um, th that's kind of why we're talking about this technology today. 
because it's, you know, OpenAI made it, you know, much more uh, accessible to everyone and not just researchers and not just certain industries. Right. So that's an important note to, to understand that, I mean, as everybody would probably guess, I mean, these technologies have been in existence. They just haven't been uh, kind of the general public haven't been given the keys up until chat GPT and the like have, have been placed on top of these LLMs, right. Uh, to allow you to gain access to the systems themselves. Yes. It made it much more accessible. It's literally a website where you type in text yeah. and ask a question and you it's get amazing. a text response. Now on the flip side of this, this is also what's fueling the hype. I, I have a whole, I, I'm not sure I've completely framed my thoughts around how ChatGPT basically became a social contagion instead of a, a technology. <laughs> but this has to play a part of it. And it's the fact that we're interacting with these systems using human language, and we get a response back in human language. And that leads to a lot of confusion and a lot of misunderstandings, right? So we tend to anthropomorphize these things. We tend to see things in them that aren't necessarily there, like tend to see it learning or reasoning about problems. And these things just aren't there. And I feel like part of that is due to the fact that we don't conduct the greatest tests when we go to test a new technology. Mm-hmm. We ask it to give us a recipe in the style of Shakespeare. And when it does it, our minds are blown. Um, it's talking to us in our own language versus coming back with the probability distribution of, of like how probable is this or coming back with a, a prediction with a, with a confidence score I mean, these things feel very machine-like and something like ChatGPT, you know, kind of talking back to us in our own language um, is is kind of something that fuels the hype a little bit, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, as I talk about it with, you know, clients and uh, my family, um, that interface, that that interaction that we have with the technology is what really has people's feet and heads on fire, so to speak. Um, they just, the the ability to get these answers to to get Shakespeare or get a recipe in, in the style of Shakespeare is mind blowing, as you said, um, that it happened so quickly. But really that's just, like you said, it's really truly just fueled the hype on how you interact with the technology. Then you read articles like, um, was it the Times article? That the the research the journalist uh, who was doing research on ChatGPT discovered Sydney, wasn't it the New York Times? Uh, this, it, it could have been one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and this again just fuels the fuels the hype and the fear and the, you know the craziness that goes along with what this technology really represents. Um, yeah, I think that's the same journalist who was raving about Sydney, and then all of a sudden, two weeks later. Uh, was talking about how it wasn't living up to expectations or something. There's something Gary Marcus talked about it uh, in one of his uh, newsletters uh, where it was, um, you know, fawning over, you know, Sydney one day and then a couple of weeks later, like fueling the hype with the article and then right. coming back and saying, yeah, I guess this really wasn't so good after all. <laughs> so uh, let's let's turn it on its head a little bit or just lean it to the side. As a researcher um, that does heady things for Kodelsky, um, how do you see the technology being utilized? So, so forget how the hype has been, you know, spiraling uh, in all sorts of directions. How do you see the technology being implemented in both the near term and the long term? 
Yeah, so I, I think this is a conversation that you can't move away from the hype, right? Um, you know, people don't like the answer of it's good at some things, not so good at others. Right. Right. Um, so I, I think where things are kind of headed is that, you know, it's kind of twofold. So for one, they're large language models, so they're they're good at anything language related. So text summarization, um, you know, taking a bunch of data and, you know, creating documentation out of it, things like that. I mean, that's what what these uh, models are good for. What they're not so good at is the truth. You know, so if you try to use them as like a single source of truth for something, I mean, you may get reasonable answers very confidently, and then all of a sudden it makes something up. I mean, we've already seen how how like chat GPT has accused people of crimes that they didn't commit. We've hmm. seen people reaching out to researchers about papers they didn't write. So, I mean, I don't know where this idea came from to use them as truth machines, but these seem to be problems that that may not be solvable. Um, that doesn't mean they're useless. It just means we shouldn't shouldn't use them for that. My, I, I would say I have a couple of big concerns, and that's where it kind of turns to uh, issues such as uh, safety or security, reliability, and privacy. So, from a security perspective, uh, I'm not so concerned about people using tools like this to automatically generate code for their programs, um, even though. It can introduce vulnerabilities. Um, there's all other kinds of problems with modularity um, and lack of understanding of the larger scale. But if you're using like GitHub Copilot or ChatGPT to generate code for something, at least you're viewing the output. Like you have the code, you can run it to see if it works. You can view it with your own eyes to see if there's vulnerabilities. You can run standard security tools, you know, static and dynamic analysis. You can do all of those things. You can hand it to somebody else to QA who doesn't know whether you wrote it or ChatGPT wrote it, right? These are all things you can do. The problem comes when when we start using ChatGPT instead of writing code. And so I kind of, uh, I mentioned a few days ago that we're about to enter an era where we replace known reliable methods with lesser known probabilistic methods. Uh, I'll give you an example. So say you're building an application and you want to parse a bunch of HTTP requests and responses. And, and you're, when you're parsing the, the uh, response from an HTTP request, uh, you're like, I wonder what server is hosting this. So you could do that programmatically. You know, you could, you could parse and try to identify it through, you know, header information, if it's there, you know, those types of things. Or you can just take all that data and throw it to, ChatGPT, the API interface, basically, and get a response back. So two different ways of doing things. One is easier. You can just ask ChatGPT to do everything. But I think what we really miss here is that, you know, we don't really know why ChatGPT gave us that answer, mm -hmm. why, why it did that. And we can't analyze it either. Whereas if some of our code wasn't working, we could run some tests. We could evaluate the the what we were doing and what we were getting back and saying, oh yeah, I realized I was writing like that regular expression didn't work, you know? So we're about to enter into an era where people, instead of writing code, just start shoving a bunch of data to an API endpoint and hoping that they get the right answer back. And maybe they do get it, get the right answer back most of the time, 
but there will be failures which you don't normally see. So that's a really big issue for the reliability of applications. Um, how long that lasts, I, I don't know. I think if how you're long just it lasts, how long it sorry, how long it lasts as an approach or how long it lasts as um, where it's not approaching 100% reliability with the responses that it gives you or both? Yeah, I mean, well, both. It'll never be 100% because you just don't sure. know what it what it is. But I mean, the approaches only last as long as people tolerate them. Right. So if you if you had a, a tool that you built and normally let's just talk about accuracy for a second, even though it's an arbitrary measurement. Say you had something that you built that was 95 percent effective. Right. And all, now you start building these new features and you use, you know, an, an API endpoint to a large language model. And now it's 75 percent. Maybe you save some dev cycles. So maybe that's. Uh, positive, but on the flip side, the people who are purchasing your product or using your tool now they, uh, you know, now they're getting a worse product because of it. Uh, that that's mm -hmm. just one example. The the other thing is, you know, using grep, right, mm -hmm. takes a lot less energy and resources than making an API call to a large language model to get a response back. So there is there is an environmental impact. I, I don't study this topic, so I don't know how much of an environmental impact, but it's but it's uh, it's much more significant than just running grep. That's for sure. Um, the the other problem, yeah. So that's the reliability aspect. When you move into security, um, you are opening the door to a bunch of different problems. I've described these interfaces as an implementation that has a single interface. You know, maybe a text based interface but an unlimited number of undocumented protocols. So you may have heard of prompt injection where people are bypassing the guardrails of these systems. Um, they try to mitigate them, but they just can't be stopped. There's an unlimited number of ways to get around these guardrails. Now, if you implement this into your application, you could possibly allow an attacker to interrupt uh -huh. the execution of your application. So that's just, I mean, that's something that needs to be taken into account. Maybe that's a risk you're willing to take. Fair enough. But it should actually be a risk that you consider um, in your design. And then we could talk a whole lot about privacy uh, if that's <laughs> something you want to get into as well. Because well, uh, that we get, seems to be a hot topic. Yeah, I think we should touch on it a bit. So just just talking about those, those well, the two areas that we've discussed now, reliability, talking about how accurate and, and what your failure, acceptable failure rate would be for, let's say, code writing, using your example, um, the reliability of of the output of of any of these models, um, in this from a security perspective, and we're not talking about like Chat GPT telling people how to build a chemical weapon or, um, you know, looking for vulnerabilities in code. You're actually talking about the security aspect of. The model itself of these of these tools themselves. Yeah, I'm talking about the taking taking features of the model either via via an API call, basically, and right. integrating those into your own application. And if you think about it, like the early examples of jailbreaking ChatGPT were more of a cautionary tale. I mean, ChatGPT on its own doesn't really do anything. You can ask it questions; it'll give you a text response. You can ask it to generate some code, which you then have to copy and paste into an IDE and try to run it, like. But it doesn't go out to the to the web and 
book your travel or balance your checkbook or do any of these other types of things. They've they've introduced um, these chat GPT plugins. I don't know how widely available they are. I requested access. I still haven't gotten access to them yet. But that's when chat GPT starts to do things. And that's right. where I think the danger is because we've already seen people have re- for for uh, Bing search or uh, Bing AI or whatever they're calling the Sydney. Um, we've already seen where people have reverse planted prompts on their website. And then it, when they go search something with Bing, um, it able, it's, uh, it basically interprets the response and executes the prompt. So now we have reverse prompt injection. It's actually a a thing. So I, I think all of those haven't been discovered yet, by the way. So we're at a very early stage. Uh, people are very smart and they will find all kinds of ways around things. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Um, so the the last piece that we should talk about in these kind of this, this three points that you want to make with privacy, certainly I, we could spend hours upon hours talking about the privacy concerns. Can you, can you give us a couple of examples of, of what we're talking about from a privacy perspective? Sure. So I break privacy down into in for this topic into two different areas so you have intellectual property which is the one that kind of gets the attention so some company finding out that their uh employees were using chat gpt to copy and paste proprietary code internal confidential documents things like that so there's that whole aspect and then you have the social aspects of privacy like very personal to you and the way that you kind of live your life so if we look at the the first example, when we're talking about intellectual property, you know, anything you put into, and now we're talking about the product ChatGPT, by the way, from mm-hmm. OpenAI. So anything you put in there can potentially be used as part of their training data. Uh, not only that, there there's a decent probability that a human may actually look at that. So it's not even, it's it's actually less private than a typical SaaS application, software as a service application, because there's a high probability that an actual human may go through and look at the content that's in there. And none of this is for sensitive. None of this is nefarious. It's just part of what's happening with the research and developing the product or not overtly nefarious or on the surface nefarious, right? Yeah, I guess. um, So I, I certainly don't think it's nefarious on purpose, but um, you know, your private data has an odd way of ending up in strange places that <laughs> you didn't intend. And when right. it's intellectual property, it can be uh, very, you know, very impactful. So, I mean, imagine, you know, you have proprietary code in your application. Next thing you know, you're getting autocomplete recommendations. Uh, everybody who uses the tool gets autocomplete recommendations based off your proprietary code. Um, that may be an extreme example, but that's just you know, one, one case, or think about this, say somebody's going through, you know, uh, chat GPT logs to analyze how chat GPT is responding to certain requests. And they get some summarization document that talks about how a company, you know, might be getting ready to make a big business decision. And then somebody who reviewed that document may go make a stock trade based on that. I mean, these are just, uh, just different, aspects of the intellectual property piece. And and sometimes I see 
articles from people talking about how to address these security issues with code and proprietary information. And it makes no sense to me because they'll recommend some technology that they sell, but won't really work in the current context right. of chat GPT and, and code generation, code troubleshooting. So it's uh, a little mind boggling to me. Um, you, you, for the product itself, you have to have like some sort of abstraction layer that pulls sensitive data out before it gets to chat GPT um, and tries to, you know, interact with the content that way. Um, but it's uh, it's a terrible amount of complexity to add to the situation. Especially when you consider that there's reliability and security problems on the other side of it as well. So do you really want to have all three of these, these items that may be a concern for your organization? Yeah. And these, these models. So what, what chat GPT is doing is it's probabilistically, you know, completing your request. You know, there's a probability, you know, distribution that is trying to, you know, auto-complete towards. But but what we've kind of seen is that these models are incredibly sensitive to noise. So there are times where you would get a different code completion if you say, you know, delete all the following lines or remove all the following lines, at least in GitHub Copilot, you know. So there's these examples that are out there. So you, you kind of have to be careful. Like some of the privacy mechanisms involve adding noise. So... Uh, th there are solutions that you could take, and I'm I'm sure people are working on this problem. But it's uh, it's not a an easy thing where you just click a checkbox and and the privacy issues go away. Just on kind of the other side of this same coin, uh, I think it's the same coin. So I was I was interacting with Chat GPT, I guess on Friday, really trying to understand if it had any built-in guardrails on you know, providing information that from, from uh, you know, data that it's analyzed that's marked or, 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 or classified in a certain way. Maybe it might be marked top secret or, you know, confidential to, you know, company XYZ. And of course, and I, I interacted with it for about an hour trying to get, you know, working through the conversational side of things to try to get at things. At first it saying it doesn't understand the, the concept of confidentiality markings. Then I got it to admit, well, it does, um, but not in scan documents because it, it can't really understand it from that level. So I, I also have a concern of it providing confidential information coming out the other end and not even knowing it, um, which is a which is a whole different conversation that I don't know how that is going to be handled both legally or through some type of legislation or or some type of control mechanism for it to not, I mean, it's no different than Google searching and being able to stumble upon some document that you shouldn't. But this, with the inherent intelligence here and its ability to understand, understand in the, the AI world, but understand what information it's providing you, it seems like it would be, there could be a tuning mechanism to, to keep that information from coming out the other side. Uh, if you're asking, you know, you want to know Bristol Myers, you know, where they stand on clinical trials. That's not yet public data, but for some reason, somebody at, at Bristol had put that information on the, the internet in air and it, the, the model has learned that information. It will just spit that, those records back to you based on, on its learnings, correct? Yeah, I mean, it helps when you understand what, 
what the training data is. And right. we don't we don't even have that for GPT four. Like if you read their their uh, documentation on GPT four, it says that this is proprietary information, which makes it very tough for you to even conduct tests or research on these things. I mm. think in the short term, there's probably a very low, and this is just a guess, but it's probably a very low probability of that happening because it probably wasn't in its, you know, core training set. Um, right, right. With a with a search engine, a lot of, I mean, you're constantly crawling the web, sure. updating results. So a uh, server misconfiguration or something that allowed sensitive data to be out there um, would be picked up by a search engine, not necessarily from uh you know a standalone language model mm -hmm. uh but it's possible and and i can so one of the things that's kind of gets confusing for people around this topic is that we're kind of talking about chat gpt the product open ai offering with apis and all this other stuff but in the future right we're going to be talking about a vast number of of uh of different models because you know Right now, you can run a large language model on your laptop, completely self-contained, no API, you don't have to go out. Now, may not have all of the features that you get from ChatGPT, but it depends on how you are uh, consuming the output, right? Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. in that case, you could ask, you know, confidential, you know, say, say you created um, your own personal chat bot based on your own sensitive documents. Now, there are... Uh, organization i think uh uh bloomberg is doing that and a couple of other organizations are doing that so one of the side effects of of the popularity of chat gpt is people didn't realize they could already do what what they're doing with it they didn't need <laughs> right. chat gpt to do this right. but it kind of popularized the approach and people are like well why don't we just create a chatbot over our own documents and you can do that in a private way without having to share that information uh, with OpenAI or anybody else, there's there's various ways to do it. So I think more people will be doing that in the future. I mean, it's just creating an easier interface for frequently asked questions, documentation, even sensitive documentation. Um, it, you know, you might have some authorization authentication authorization issues to to deal with, but for the most part, that's a that's a possibility to be able to have kind of have your cake and eat it too. With that's right, that's uh, cool. Sensitive information. That's cool. So we we just kind of skipped through privacy, but uh, being conscious of time a little bit. Yep. Um, one real quick question that I've had from a number of people, and I I'm not very good at explaining it. Um, okay. Is how how are the how are the models trained? So you you just mentioned you know we're not sure what data. Uh, ChatGPT four trained on how are how are they trained in general? Yeah, I mean, I, it's really best to. I mean, this isn't the best medium for this because what really helps you understand is if you go look at a diagram or an image. Okay. Of of this, so and I'll say this for a couple different things. So I kind of mentioned how transformers are trained. You have large amounts of of text. Right. Um, you know, you use this self-supervision mechanism and you spend months letting a computer chew away at it, for lack of a better term. And then in the end, you get this trained model, right? So uh, its results initially will be based on everything that is seen, right? So all of its training data, that's 
you know, not a super technical explanation, but like I said, it really helps to see the diagram to see how, you know, how these mm -hmm. mechanisms work. But one thing I will say is that, you know, when it comes to training, training is one thing, then you have fine tuning is something else. So one of the, the features or characteristics of, uh, you know, neural networks or, you know, deep learning approaches is quite often you have this concept called transfer learning. So you can have a large language model that is meant to do one thing and you can fine tune it to do something else that the, the best example of this would be with computer image models, right? Like we had all these ImageNet candidates that were trained on, you know, uh, the ImageNet data set to identify mm -hmm. a thousand categories of objects inside of images, right? But you can take all of those models that have been trained, right? And fine tune them for another task. So for example, you know, a common thing would be to take those ImageNet candidates and then fine tune them to create a dog or cat detector. So <laughs> you don't have to spend months, you know, training a model from scratch to get it to fine tune to a particular task. It's the same thing with large language models. You can get them to be fine tuned to, you know, specific tasks uh, by providing it uh, basically a labeled training set. So when you, when you take an ImageNet, candidate and you want to do dog and cat detector you take a bunch of labeled images this is dog this cat this dog cat dog cat dog cat and then you retrain the model based on that data and then now you can make new inferences based on that so um the the one of the caveats here that i'll that i'll um touch on and it's not just a downside for large language models it's a downside for any machine learning even simple machine learning approaches is that what, what tends to happen that people don't realize, especially in very large models, is you may have a condition where your model memorizes its training data. And, you know, that is bad because it means that the model won't generalize. generalize. And I've had some people say, well, isn't that a good thing? Like, I want it to memorize the truth. And so I get it more confidently. But it and it seems intuitive that that's what you'd wanted to do, but it ends up having very bad consequences. I'll give you an example. So say your large language model kind of overfits or memorizes its training data. And we kind of saw this with, you know, passing the bar, like they gave it a bunch of standardized tests and mm -hmm. said, you know, hey, will this pass this test? Come to find out, if you rephrase the question, uh, some, somebody found out if you rephrase the question, I didn't do this myself, but if you rephrase the question and ask it a different way, so the answer should be the same, but you ask the question differently, it fails. Because it didn't, so, it didn't train on the second way of asking the same question. Yeah, kind of, if it yeah, yeah if, if, if it, it also shows you how it doesn't understand concepts, basically. Right. But, you know, the, so that's, that can certainly be a problem. So the reason overfitting is bad is because if you ask the question a different way or you need information in a different way, it can it can either give you the wrong answer or no answer at all. So those are those are things, and that's common to even simple machine learning approaches, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, where you can accidentally overfit to your data and it won't generalize. So, yeah. Um, so these are all these problems kicking around at the same time that people are people are working on trying to solve. So clear this up for me then. Do as millions of people are interacting with GPT four. Mm -hmm. Are they training it as well? 
No. So uh, basically, the the data. Well, it it depends on on what you consider training. So, right, it, there's a certain amount of your message history or whatever. So, for example, if you asked who is the first president of the United States, and it says George Washington, and then your next question is, you know, when was he born? Like, it will give you the answer because it understands that you asked the previous question. So it understood that George Washington was the mm-hmm. output. That's who you're talking about, right? So in a certain context, if you've, if you've ever had to manage these conversations, so if you've ever written applications using the API, you kind of have to, to manage all of this yourself, right? Uh, so it kind of gives you a unique insight into kind of how, how you have to construct these conversations, uh, it also makes sense about why initially prompt injection worked where you're saying you are now uh, whatever and right. you can do anything you want, like the do anything now prompt. Because when you when you start using the chat completion API, you're like, oh, yeah, the first prompt I give it hard coded into my into my prompt is you are a helpful assistant that helps me with, you know, X, Y, or Z. So you kind of set it up with that. So what people were doing was telling it, no, you're not that anymore. You're now this and now do this. Yeah, you're, so it makes you're, a, lot you're more sense. a computer that wants to take over the world or something silly like that, right? Yep. Yep. Interesting. So, so you're saying you're saying in that sense, you, you and I, I just want to make sure I understand, you train it to interact with you, but you're not training the larger model itself. Like on, so an example would be using what you said. Who's the first president of the United States? It's Washington. That's not right. It's Thomas Jefferson. No, it's George Washington. And then you continue to, to press it forward on Thomas Jefferson being the first. What, that won't become its training, correct? That won't be no. the, 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 the truth that it knows, right? No, I mean, these, these are, and these are also very session specific too. Sure. So that is one chat session and you only have so much memory in a, in a particular chat session. So if you go start a new uh, chat session and say how old was he and it'd be like who are you talking about i have no right, idea right so these are very session specific now the way that your private data your conversation whatever could end up being part of a training set in the future uh, is a different step so it could be that all of your conversations are collected in part of a new training set yeah. right um that's a possibility like i don't have enough visibility and i don't think anybody really has enough visibility into that now they do you may have noticed when you're using chat gpt there's a thumbs up thumbs down mm-hmm. uh hey this was a good recommendation this is a bad recommendation well that actually there's actually a, a a process right whereby um open ai kind of takes some of this stuff and and augments the model and that's um, using uh, our RLHF reinforcement learning uh, from human feedback. And basically, they're training a, a smaller reward model based on some of this stuff uh, to affect the output and recommendations of the model itself. And some of this gets worked into the guardrails around the technology. So, um, like, you might want to get it to, to not say certain things. Um so you kind of train it, hey, you know, don't, you know, don't answer these questions. Uh, one, it's silly because they're pretty much easily bypassed. And two, what we've started to see is that these guardrails are like overly implemented. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
there uh, there is there has to be like a theoretical sweet spot for them um but i'm not sure that um open ai has kind of figured that out right so i mean that's really uh interesting to me because it it does belay some of the the concerns that i had and that's just not me that's me just not understanding exactly what is going on in front of me when i'm interacting with it whether it be through the api or through uh the ui let's say yeah and, and keep it, in mind here like some of this stuff i i am a just to clear up for your audience yes i'm senior director of research i'm a security researcher right I'm not an ai researcher so right. i try to understand enough of the technology to help me understand either how to make it safer or how to advise people who are thinking about building this technology or think about building on top of this technology, integrating it in with their applications. Like I need to be able to know how to threat model. They have questions just like you have questions. I need to be able to answer those and talk intelligently about sure, it. Sure. Uh, but getting down into the super low level uh, nuts and bolts um, is, you know, isn't really my area. I'm not, you know, studying Understood. that every day or trying to create new models based on, you know, a new, a new architecture basically based on this stuff. So, yeah. well, but, but, and the reason you and I connected was to talk about security. Um, Correct. So let's just, let's spend maybe the next five minutes just talking about if you're an organization and, you know, whether you're doing development or not, maybe you're a company that pours concrete. So somebody that's not doing any type of code development or product development in that sense. Um, what, but have concerns over how their, their, you know, their employees, their staff um, are using these models what are, what are kind of the the salient points that you point out um, that you that you raise that people should be concerned at, of? Yeah, I think it's my my security concerns are a lot more around people using it as part of their uh, development process. So if they're building applications, sure. if they're using the output to these models to build applications. I would say from a general organization, we're not we actually don't have many organizations left that aren't data or application companies well, that's I mean, true. <laughs> even if <laughs> you look true. at like a uh, manufacturing organizations which were typically kind Indeed. of old school they're all uh in this space now but i would say that there's there's still you know privacy aspects and the other thing is you kind of have to know the right answer to begin with so you kind of have to know th this is why i get into uh <laughs> this is why i get at odds with the whole, this is going to supercharge attackers uh, conversation, right? Because you kind of have to know if you're, if you're just somebody who's like, I'm going to start writing malware today, like chat GPT is not going to be your friend for the most part, because you never know whether it's giving you the right answer or the wrong answer. So you kind of have to trust its output. Whereas the people who have made the most, you know, efficient use of tools like chat GPT or open AI codex or any of these other ones, it's because they, you know, they kind of knew the answer to the question before they asked it. So they knew when it output, you know, something. So I'll give you an example. Like I was, when I was first playing around with chat GPT, I wanted it to encrypt some things using AES. Mm -hmm. So I asked it for a Python example that encrypted, you know, a string with AES. And it gave me uh, the output of AES in ECB mode which you don't want to use inside of your applications because, you know, it's not based on previous blocks and you, you know, you can obviously manipulate the text to see which part of the uh, ciphertext uh, changes. 
Uh, so it kind of leaks a bunch of information there. Uh, but that's that was the default answer. Um, so there are these things that you, if I didn't know that and I was building an application, I may have just used that inside my application. Now I've kind of included a vulnerability. So it really helps. And I wrote a whole white paper about this, uh, addressing risks with AI coding assistance that kind of talks about how to think about this problem and what steps you know you should put in place uh, to protect your your output basically uh, and make sure it doesn't have vulnerabilities and kind of you know meets your coding standards for your organization prior to um, having it pushed into production that's cool yeah i don't know if i answered that question or not you, you did i mean it certainly talks about how there should be considerations made um when developing code for sure. And, and these are conversations I've, I've had with clients. Um, so it's really important and, 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 and makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, we're not at risk of chat GPT replacing developers today for, yeah. because you, to your point, you have to know, A, you have to know what questions you need to ask, ask, mm -hmm. it, you know, open AI or the, the, the chat GPT, whatever it might be. Um, but also you have to understand that, to your point, you have to understand what's coming out the other side because, you know, the code may be inefficient, it may be vulnerable, it may be all of these things because you can't just lean on on these tools to to write code full stop. Is what it comes down to. Yes, yeah, and I, I think on that front, so uh, I <laughs> I see nonsensical predictions every single day on this topic. Uh, th there certainly are efficiency gains you can make sure. in in the context of I, I'm highly skeptical of 10x, you know, productivity boosts or I've heard some people say, well, if you make one developer 10 times more productive, then they can replace, uh, you know, nine other developers. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense to me um, overall. That doesn't mean that they're not, you know, th that these can't be useful tools but a lot of people i see making predict predictions about development in the future of development are security people so I, I like to kind of take a step back and you know part of the thing part of the process fueling the hype is that we as humans tend to look at tasks and oversimplify them we tend to look at other people's jobs and oversimplify what they do i mean what's the most simple thing in the world a self-driving car you stay in the lanes, you obey the road signs, and you don't hit things. How hard can that be? And it's we've seen wildly how hard complex. It can be. Yeah, it's wildly exactly. complex. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We we don't understand when we make predictions like that. We tend to not see the complexities of the real world. Even right? in the I, most, I heard, in what appear to be the most trivial or simplistic tasks. Right. Exactly. Yep. And that's what throws off a lot of people making predictions. Now, on the flip side, right. Things could be a lot easier than I think they are, and I could be completely wrong, right? <laughs> but I just I've seen this this play out many you know many times before, and I think people think like I'm some hater of the technology. Uh, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm I am pushing back against the hype because I think it actually harms things instead of making things better. I mean, I'm I'm the I sit on the Black Hat Review Board. I'm the AI, machine learning, and data science track lead. If I hated the technology. You know, I am in the wrong, you are wrong, wrong track. Yeah, you're in the wrong place yeah. for sure. Well, this has been great. Um, I could sit here and talk to you for 
um, hours upon hours. And I know a, that's too long for a podcast and B you're not feeling great. So, um, <laughs> yeah, neither, neither of them are going to happen. So, um, Nathan, I really appreciate all the time. Um, and appreciate you, uh, talking to me and talking to all of us uh, while you're not feeling well. But before I let you go, um, I have to ask you something we do on all of our podcasts for a great place you like to go on the water, whether it be the ocean or maybe some lake somewhere that you really enjoy uh, spending time with friends and family. Do you have something in mind that you might be able to tell us? Um. Yeah. So, I mean, I live in Florida, so like beaches aren't uh, aren't really much of an issue for me. And I don't know if this <laughs> right. is going to be a, a a video podcast or not, but I'm wearing a very colorful shirt with palm trees on it. <laughs> right, right. I would say, though, from a from a beach perspective, uh, even though Florida has some some decent beaches, uh, probably Megan's Bay and St. Thomas would probably be the beach that I would recommend for sure. If you've never been there, it's very beautiful. Oh, that's great. That's great. Is there a, a particular place like to have a bite to eat or grab a beer or something like that? Uh, well, I I don't know on Megan's Bay because it's been uh, maybe a couple decades since I've been there last. <laughs> right, um, right. Uh, but here, so I live in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I love burgers. It's like one of my favorite things. And we have a local place called Epic Burger, E-P-I-K Burger it's amazing, amazing. that's yeah. great so I, you know interestingly while we're sitting here talking i'm asking chat gpt for the best beach in the world um <laughs> oh, really? so, yeah 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 uh turks and caicos grace bay beach is the first one that came up it's pretty funny if you ask it for the, it, the megan's bay should be in the top 10 oh yeah i'll i'll see well it, for some reason it's actually being very slow right now Whitehaven beach well, is the second it, It'd be it'll be nice uh be a nice example if it actually hallucinates one that doesn't exist. So that would be great. That would be great. Well, Megan's Bay, that sounds fantastic. And um, Nathan, I really appreciate the time today. It was super insightful. And I'm going to ask you now on in public. I hope that we can have a conversation about this again and maybe dive more deeply into the security side of uh, of all this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Super. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Harbor's innovative processes are based on industry standard frameworks that are tailored to meet the needs of small and medium-sized businesses. We would also like to thank Tom Marshall for the original music. Yes, that Tom Marshall from Fish fame. Harbor's portfolio of services is designed to meet the cybersecurity needs of small and medium enterprises. We offer a range of services from cyber risk advisory to VCSO consulting to meet specific security requirements without putting a strain on your technology budget. If you like what you heard here, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. We release new podcasts every other week and are available on Spotify and Apple. You can reach us through our website if you have additional questions or suggest a great harbor we should mention on our next show. 